Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobak, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am extremely excited for this next interview. I'm very happy to welcome Edita Roshko to the program. Edita Roshko is a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway. And today we are talking about her book, Fishers, Monks, and Cadres, Navigating State, Religion, and the South China Sea in Central Vietnam, which was published in 2020 with the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies Press and 2021 with the University of Hawaii Press, through which it is available as an open access book. Professor Roshko, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you, Adam, for inviting me. It is a really pleasure to be here. What inspired you to write this book? <laughs> Thank you for this question. I think before I will answer, maybe I just say a few words uh, how I actually uh, get even into this business of <laughs> of doing research in Vietnam and writing uh, a book. Um, when I was a, a, a student, master student uh, in Poland in uh, in Łódź, uh, which is the uh, city uh, in central uh, Poland. I always uh, wanted to go to uh, Asia. I started to learn Chinese and my dream was to get uh, to China. Unfortunately, I didn't get the uh, scholarship to China. One of the professors said, well, you have to catch the bird with the longer tail. So why do they not try Vietnam? And I haven't knew much about Vietnam, but thought it's not a bad idea. Um, and that's what I did. I tried to get, uh, I applied for this uh, fellowship, which was um, uh, awarded by Polish Ministry of Culture and Sport. That's how it was called in 2002. Uh, and uh, I actually, technically, I was not eligible because I was just about to defend my master thesis. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the university authorities, they worried that they basically couldn't make a uh, me uh, irresponsible if I will misbehave, for example, to some business instead of uh, doing science. So, uh, so they they were not sure whether uh, I could basically uh, apply for this. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I uh, I I convinced the director of the university who signed the documents for me. I take these documents directly to Warsaw, uh, and then basically left that with the uh, with the ministry and. Uh, one year later, uh, in July, I 
have that I got this fellowship and um, I'm going to it now. It was just one month after my uh, graduation. Um, and it was scholarship based on the all collaboration between the socialist countries, the so all socialist fraternity. So um, I went for one year. I was based in the Vietnam Academy of Social uh, Science in the Institute for Religion Studies. I remember before I went there, I received the phone call from uh, Vietnamese embassy uh, because religion was a sensitive topic and they asked me whether I could do something else, for example, research Vietnamese poetry. And I remember said how I could really research Vietnamese poetry. I'm an anthropologist. I have to I have to follow my profession. So they found me this uh, this place at the Vietnam uh, Institute of Religious Studies, which turned out to be uh, extremely important for me to uh, to get me familiarized with the Vietnamese culture and uh, with Vietnamese uh, people. So I have been um, in Vietnam for three years. I was able to uh, extend this fellowship uh, twice. Um, so the ministry was very generous. I have to provide some letters, proof that I'm working hard. <laughs> um, and uh, I was at that time learning um, uh, Vietnamese language. Um, the first language I, uh, which I communicated with um, our director of the institute was Russian because the all uh, um, uh, staff was basically the, between 15 years old, 16 years old was trained in Moscow. Uh, so, so that's Russian language become handy. And with the young generation, uh, you could speak English. Uh, and then with the old generation, like 80 year old, uh, then you, you probably could use uh, French. So that was this kind of language uh, division. Um, so while in Vietnam, I was trying to um, collect some um, uh, material. I was very interested in basically uh, contemporary uh, Buddhism and religious practices uh, connected with Buddhism. And I was looking for a PhD program. Um, Unfortunately, I was not accepted in Poland for a PhD, but that didn't really discourage me. So I was uh, applying uh, uh, outside of Poland and I was very lucky to get a PhD at the Max Planck uh, Institute, um, which uh, it was a wonderful time, three and a half year, um, with um, a very kind of uh, uh, intellectual environment where I could develop my ideas, I could come back to Vietnam for one year. And because I knew uh, Northern Vietnam quite well and um, I have done research, I wanted to do uh, research in a place which um, somehow was uh, a bit neglected by uh, scholars also from the West. And uh, because that's what I noticed, uh, scholars either went to uh, Northern Vietnam at that time or southern Vietnam, so I um, I was really uh, I was really thought about central Vietnam, and there was came this invitation from the Ecole France Extreme Orient, the the French school of uh, um, uh, Far East, uh, and they already started the uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary program in archaeology and history um, uh, in Quang Ai in uh, central Vietnam. So I joined them and basically I get the, uh, I was introduced to the local authorities and that helped to basically to get um, all permissions research and 
and uh, uh, this contact facilitated that I could do uh, research in two uh, communities, uh, fishing communities on the coast uh, and uh, on the island. Um, you ask what inspired this book. So, so that's really this long trajectory, basically, um, uh, which is based on this long-term uh, ima ima uh, like, uh, emergency uh, ima uh, when I emerged in the in the field work and uh, and being in Vietnam for three years, but also the observation that in Vietnam there is no religious sphere that would will be clearly distinguishable from a secular sphere. And I think coming from a Polish background, you know, uh, in 2002, and it was my first experience in Asia that really struck me that it was so much different. It was so diverse. It was so vibrant. And, and the second observation when I basically uh, started to do my research in central Vietnam was that maritime periphery uh, was central in the context of the uh, intensifying uh, South China Sea dispute over the parasols and sprouted these two um, uh, archipelagos uh, in the middle of the sea, uh, which uh, basically Vietnam and China um, uh, 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 made their claims. So now the question is how these two teams, religion and maritime periphery, uh, came together. So my book uh, specifically looks at um, post-colonial time. Some people call that, some scholars call this late uh, socialist uh, Vietnam. But I show that religion and heritage become a disciplinary and regulatory categories to control all sorts of devotional practices uh, in Vietnam. And in order to have the practices formally recognized by the state groups or individuals, they need to be framed into world religion. But localized and uh, like spirit possession practices that fall outside of this scope of formalized, institutionalized, categorized religion, they are labeled as um, cultural heritage. So this link between the cultural heritage and religion, this was, was really I captured and I wanted to grasp and understand. Um, so since 2003, UNESCO Convention of Intangible Cultural Heritage, various groups and individuals in Vietnam uh, started to seek to legitimize their religious practices by inserting them into narratives supporting all sorts of territorial claims. So in this way, connecting their religious practices and identity with official historical narratives through heritage, they sacralize state territorial claims. So this is how I look. I look at this, I know this is South China Sea dispute. I noticed these different religious practices and I saw how this geopolitics basically connects with people's um, way, how they practice religion and how they basically insert their practices into these global discourses and and sacralize these territorial claims on different levels, on local levels where they claim their temples back, but also in the terms of uh, disputed territories which are far away and probably they, some of them they have never seen them uh, in their own eyes. So in order to be legible, legible, such claims not only need to be made in legal terms, but above all inscribed 
themselves in authorized heritage discourse within global and local heritage, as I said. So taking the overlapping nature of heritage with religious practices and territorial claims in Vietnamese context as a point of departure, I suggest that basically my book, uh, findings of this book could allow to uh, think about other places that could be applied to other places. And uh, I'm thinking particularly about uh, contemporary China because China also forges itself as a maritime civilization uh, through fishing heritage, through worship of seafaring uh, deities and the territorial claims um, uh, to the uh, entire South China Sea. Also, if we think about India, and uh, so the ontological claims to be a maritime civilization through spread of Hindu and uh, Hindu religion and Buddhism. So this is how India also claims that it's a maritime civilization. And uh, we could also find examples much closer to Europe, for example, Turkey. Um, and I'm sure you know an uh, example of uh, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, so Hagia Sophia in Turkish. And so which has this kind of shift from being church, mosque, museum, and then mosque uh, again. So as a World Heritage Museum was turned into mosque by President Erdogan, but Greece uh, protested that although um, Hagia Sophia is located in Turkey's territory, it is a monument of all mankind, regardless of religion. So, so this is how this religion and this territorial sometimes claims cast together. Uh, also, I think the findings of my book might be helpful to think about the war in the Ukraine. So, uh, in the sense of historical narratives supporting the war in Russia and uh, on Russian and Russian and Ukrainian sides, for example, both sides claim Kiev as the cradle of their nation, um, and Kiev was founded in 10th century by Varangians. Uh, the city became the center of Kievan Rus. Uh, it was one of the world's largest cities until the 17th century, destructions by the Mongols. It is the site of world heritage sites, St. Sophia Cathedral and Pacheslavra, Hayes Monastery. And both are part of the Russian Orthodox Church, not the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which basically split off in 2018. So Putin claims that Ukrainians are basically fake Russian, and while Zelensky claims that Ukrainian is an independent uh, nation. So in this way, uh, the war in Ukraine um, might uh, uh, inspire us to think uh, how these notions of heritage and territory are uh, connected. So uh, to wrap up, I would say, and coming back to this uh, questions, what inspired this book, I think... Um, the, the 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 main finding which I show is that cultural heritage is connected up and represents local identities and different sensibilities. That local communities and organizations offer strive for recognition of cultural heritage by state or UNESCO, which is the more uh, global uh, institution, and this forces that forces them to articulate their cultural practices in terms of global authorized heritage discourse, but also uh, it transcends the divisions between religion and secular as the encounters between state and non-state actors is grounded in social life and specific historical and geopolitical context across national, global and local scales. So um, 
I would say that the both inspiration and the main finding is that through the connections of religious practices and state historical narratives uh, in heritage, it is possible to sacralize uh, territorial claims, as also the recent global uh, events show. Could you could you now um, you've talked about. Uh, who could benefit from reading this book? Could you talk about what audience you had in mind while you were writing the book? Uh, yes, uh, of course. And uh, this is also what you write the proposal of the, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the book. Um, I think uh, the book is intended to a broad academic public um, and should be particular of particular interest of uh, specialists in anthropology, but not only those who are interested in ancient studies, religion, and international politics, uh, to anyone uh, interested in studies of state, society, uh, relations, religion, um, as I said, heritage studies, uh, nationalism, even tourism, uh, island studies, and with particular interest in geopolitics uh, of Southeast Asia. And since it has been published by the University of Hawaii Press, I also had into mind uh, American audience because um, the Second Indochina War, also known more as the Vietnam War, uh, is an um, uh, issue which many people still are interested in Vietnam. Uh, so, and that's basically uh, those readers who want to broaden their knowledge about the region and particularly about the uh, South China Sea and any legacy from the Vietnam War. Uh, so they might be interested to read uh, this book. And I'm also receiving recently um, sometimes emails from the uh, Vietnam War veterans who, uh, who read this book, who basically who have these memories of being in central Vietnam, uh, also in the area where I have done my research, one of the, of the village of the of the mainland, Sapuin. Uh, so I have I received um, emails when they uh, actually thanked me uh, because they said that they couldn't at that time they couldn't really understand uh, uh, religious practices they have they work with the. Um, uh, translators, Vietnamese translators, who try to explain to them uh, the world they are living. Uh, and then uh, they said that after so many years reading that uh, book or reading the chapters or some articles which are uh, um, which touch on the issues, all those uh, issues that remind them the time era in Vietnam and, uh, and the things which this translator tried to communicate uh, to them. Uh, so that is definitely um, uh, uh, touching, uh, uh, I think, experience uh, that this book also had uh, reached this, those kind of readers. Um, recently, I also am surprised because I also learned that um, the book is read by oncologists, um, especially those who are interested in the global history of, uh, of coast. Um, and coastal history, and um, particularly who are much more ethnographically oriented. Uh, so in archaeology is also now, um, I think the, the bigger awareness of that if you want to do excavation, if you want to uh, do um, uh, uh, archaeology, you also have to interact with the communities. You all want to learn 
about the community's histories and some of the practices even you know they might still continue and there must be some 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 um, kind of signs uh, from the past which might be observed uh, in the present so um so i guess uh, uh, some of the chapters of my book which um touch uh, to uh, the issues of the coast about the divisions between the fishers and farmers uh, might be helpful to get some kind of overview of the uh, of the place or the dynamic you know uh, of this particular vietnamese uh, coast um uh, on the on the edge of the south china sea um i hope i i answered your question <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely could we uh, begin in talking about the book? Could we begin by talking about the relationship between rice cultivation and fishing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's actually at the heart uh, of this uh, book. Um, maybe I will, should start from that because we could talk on different levels, on um, empirical levels, but also on political and uh, ritual levels. So. But maybe I should say that um, uh, these categories of uh, fishers and farmers, uh, they come very clearly in the book, but they are actually not like fixed or frozen fossil uh, categories. They are also uh, in flux. And um, I think I got my interest also to look at uh, fishermen because... Um, and Vietnam is very much perceived through the, uh, until now was very much perceived through the uh, wet rice um, kind of culture. So, but uh, in pre-colonial and colonial Vietnam, fishermen uh, or fishers, which are both men and women, uh, are this category uh, basically, uh, which is marginal, very much excluded from the agricultural village almost like a stateless people and they are very often landless this um and this landless is very important because they live on the basically on the coast just between the sea and the land which is uh which they could farm and very often they don't even have the place to bury their uh, relatives and um, they close one and that's something which I, you can observe all over um uh asia uh, southeast asia for example uh, other places. Also, when I um, went to uh, uh, Hainan in, uh, in southern China to do my research, and I trace one particular community, Chan community, which migrated from Vietnam 10 centuries ago, and they still have this memory and they still have the identity. Uh, uh, somehow they kept that. Uh, so they uh, showed me the, uh, their um, uh, graves on the beach. Uh, basically in the sand uh, because they were uh, they didn't have a land they were they were basically uh, traders uh, farmers and um, and that's actually it's very important that uh, this as we call them fishers in the past they have uh, uh, really uh, multiple occupations because uh, in contrast to farmers uh, you have to uh, trade fish to buy a rice and basically subsistence and um, and uh, and and to live. So you have to trade. You have to uh, maybe in out of the season, fishing season. Maybe you engage in pi piracy uh, or some other uh, uh, activities. Uh, 
And we know that uh, states, imperial states, often conscripted piracy for their own uh, purpose to maybe advance some political uh, aim. And this is actually the uh, the project which I'm leading now. It's about this shifting categories between fisher poachers, like the maritime militia in past and present, which I'm trying to 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 basically trace and unpack this monolithic or mono occupation category of fishers because these people are really historically combined different uh, different uh, occupations a different way of uh, of reading um but uh, in contemporary world uh, in post-colonial vietnam or late socialist uh, vietnam um so historically subordinate officials benefited from the party state efforts to bright break down the hierarchical structure of the old society, uh, which uh, the agriculture village and the whole uh, set up in the village was um, uh, basically a very hierarchical and also excluded fishermen. So they benefited from that. And ironically, uh, with the mm, South China Sea dispute, the uh, fishers, they improved their uh, situation uh, because uh, they become important political players in the South South China Sea. Basically, daily presence at the sea also, um, uh, in a way, helps the state um, to perform the borders of the sea and and, uh, and to perform the sovereignty. Um, so they enhance their um, uh, economic status, their political status. Uh, in Vietnam, and basically they turned the tables of the old hierarchy, <laughs> um, and they started to interestingly also invest uh, uh, ritually into uh, old agricultural village uh, temples uh, in the village. So, so there are all these uh, different uh, dynamics. Uh, but um, when you ask about this relation between rice and cultivation and fishing, it also come on the other level. Um, as I mentioned, uh, until now, um, uh, Vietnam was uh, uh, defined as a wet rice civilization, as a, and Red River Delta was a cradle of that civilization. But uh, with the South China Sea dispute and intensification of this of this conflict of the or, or, over the certain parts of the sea, uh, Vietnam recasted itself from the village-based rice-growing nation, um, depicting during its various wars against the foreigners, whether Chinese, French, <laughs> or American, or the American. Um, so, and it rebranded itself as a maritime nation. Uh, and it's interestingly, a maritime nation, not maritime civilization. So we see the difference in Chinese. In China, you have uh, China rebranded itself as uh, maritime civilization. So uh, Vietnam is much modest uh, because talks about maritime uh, nation. And uh, in a way, this discursive shift from the land to the sea uh, and that from farming uh, to, to fishing um, is a relatively uh, recent invention um, and uh, basically place Vietnam in Anthony Reed, the historian of Southeast Asia, um, Malay world. Uh, 
it's saying that uh, it's not to claim that Vietnam was doesn't have maritime history, uh, but the focus which is given to that and the whole narratives which foregrounds uh, the sea recently um, uh, in a in a describing and understanding Vietnamese history, uh, it's actually very new. Uh, what I could add. Uh, also, uh, when we think about rice cultivations and fishing, I think I wanted to bring um, the aspect of the sea in my books because the approach uh, which takes sea as a cosmology, it's very, uh, it's more common in the uh, in case of the work of Oceania or uh, inland Southeast Asia but not very much when we think about uh, mainland um, uh, Southeast Asia and particularly Vietnam. I don't think so that Vietnam, for example, is uh, seen uh, it's seen or thought as a particularly maritime uh, nation uh, compared to, uh, to Indonesia. So, um, and the fact that I also work on a small island, so I work, uh, this book describes fishing communities on um, on the mainland uh, of the continental masses, masses and also on small islands, um, which uh, shows a very interesting dynamic. Um, and as I said, on the mainland would be you can clearly distinguish coast, sea, and uh, agricultural land. But on the small islands where there is no perennial waters, uh, such as streams lakes, rivers, uh, there is no possibility to cultivate rice. Um, uh, islanders have to find another way how to mark the, uh, the boundaries between these different groups. So those who came first, uh, for example, on one of the islands in 16th, 17th century, so were, were first who could basically um, claim the land uh, for agriculture, not for rice, but maybe for other crops like uh, you know, sweet potatoes, uh, later corn. Um, and those who came after them, they become this category called fisher, fishers. So so basically what I try to show also how, on a different level, how the island replicates this, this hierarchy uh, despite of the geography, which is different and doesn't allow uh, uh, to do this division between rice and fishing exactly as it is on the uh, on the mainland, you you made this distinction between a maritime civilization and a maritime nation. Could you maybe elaborate more on the differences between these two things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. Connects to my uh, current project. Uh, it's about. Um, I think uh, if we, I think the main difference is how. Uh, history is uh, projected and how it's explained. And uh, you probably know uh, China uh, has also this uh, big project of the uh, Silk Road, Bells and Road initiatives. And I think that uh, South China Sea is part of that. And then this is this is where the civilization discourse come uh, into play. So... Um, I have done research also in Hainan on the Chinese side uh, of the South China Sea. And um, interestingly, what I saw is that uh, 
in the communities who uh, also fishing communities who also have the stake and historical uh, presence, like Vietnamese uh, in the disputed areas of the parcels at Spratly, um, the state built um, South China Sea uh, museum, the state museum, which is basically targeted to the domestic uh, public. And uh, in this museum, uh, it's basically uh, introduced the history of uh, Chinese maritime civilization from the very, very <laughs> uh, remote past. Basically, how China uh, cultivated uh, South China Sea uh, and uh, maintained the presence and develop, uh, use innovation, the progress, uh, new uh, uh, discoveries uh, so so there are different uh, different uh, exhibitions which tell us different stories of from a uh, story from different angles and and uh, perspective uh, what similar trends also in Vietnam when Vietnam uh, has uh, uh, exhibitions uh, through all uh, actually country on uh, east east uh, sea uh, so this is also what the vocabulary and the, the naming uh, matters. So uh, Ta Vietnam um, consistently refused the name uh, South China Sea. Even uh, the name doesn't have a legal, uh, 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 a legal weight to uh, assert that China <laughs> possessed the whole South China Sea. But, but uh, interestingly, so from Vietnamese side is the East Sea. From the Filipino uh, side is the West Sea. So uh, this this exhibition, but anyway, these exhibitions are also present in Vietnam, but they are much more localized. Uh, they uh, tell the stories of um, of um, of local communities. Uh, Vietnam talks about the uh, uh, Vietnamese stake uh, in um, in uh, in South China Sea, while China talks about the trade porcelain. They're uh, developing Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, uh, through maritime routes and through basically claiming the uh, Silk Road as a kind of uh, way where China basically connected and also helped the world uh, outside to uh, to develop um, uh, uh, in various uh, level and in various way. This, I think, this is a beautiful transition right into the next question, which is in chapter four, you tell the story of a confrontation over sacred space. Could you share that story for listeners? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the story starts from uh, when I came to the village uh, Sakuin on the in central Vietnam. Um, so this young local officer, officer who I call in that book Lai, uh, he took me to this uh, to the forbidden hills where we have to cross the canal by boat and show me this. Uh, a religious uh, place where the crossover of the Buddhist practices and Buddhist god goddesses with uh, with local folks, uh, I could actually experience, and he was very proud of that. Now, uh, the chapter describes the shifting contestation between Buddhist clergy, fishers, and the state agents for control over uh, sacred places, and this contestation I saw when I wanted to do interview at Buddhist monk. So I had to go with Loy 
together. And uh, I was supposed to ask questions, but after some time, I just noticed that it was the encounter between the two. And it was the encounter between the secular uh, authority and the religious authority. And, they, and it was very interesting because I saw the encounter between the uh, this official and the monk. Uh, and I actually experienced that they have completely different ideas about uh, how religious should be uh, practiced. And I would come back to that, but uh, this takes me back. So when I started to talk with people, this takes me back to the uh, seven, 1975. And this chapter actually do this shift, temporal shift between the past and present, because in order to understand the past, I just realized that I have to look back into uh, uh, into the uh, I, well, I present, I have to look back into the past. And so there was this story in 1978 where the, it was the time of an anti-superstitious campaign um, when basically the, the space, the temples were um, desacralized, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the religious uh, statues were removed, temples were turned into uh, secular buildings. A similar um, processes were also uh, happened in Russia, um, probably in Poland too, although that, not that not to that extent. But um, anyway, in this, this, this policeman arrived into this village, they confiscated all the sacred statue from the local village Buddhist pagoda, and they have a problem with one particular statue of the Buddhist uh, Bodhisattva Kuanran in Chinese Guanyin, um, because it was two uh, two meter uh, long, uh, so uh, and they just it was just too big to to take uh, 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 and too heavy to take it to the district office. Uh, but they were also re reluctant to destroy it themselves, which shows that they had some kind of um, hesitation. And uh, there were all the stories about the punishment from the gods, you know, for those who destroyed. So they were not really willing to destroy themselves. And they very quickly, they actually felt relieved when the local fishermen um, came with this kind of offer that they could take this uh, statue and bring to their forbidden uh, hill. So basically out of the village. Uh, and that created this impression for the police that they uh, carried their task properly. So all all sacred statues were removed from the temples and um, and basically with the accordance with anti-superstitious um, uh, policies. So however, almost 30 years later, uh, the presence of this statue, Buddhist Bodhisattva, uh, on the on the hill created the problem for the uh, new head monk uh, of the village who found that is inappropriate that a sacred image of the Buddha was placed in non-Buddhist space and demanded that fishermen return the statue to its original locations, which were actually, they were not willing to do because they saw that the statue fits perfectly with these other goddesses around. So this chapter narrates the encounter between the Buddhist monk and the state office worker, showing how they carefully test, test each other and uh, how they have this completely different vision of religiosity. So the monk sought to contradict the state official vision of productive cultural 
merging of folk beliefs and Buddhism. And he sought a radical break from local traditions. And in that sense, he was much more dismissive of the villagers' beliefs and practices than the state worker. And it's interesting because this purification of Buddhism or religion, of religion, it also become more intensive with the um, religious relaxation in Vietnam, when basically Vietnam was much more exposed to overseas experience, also from uh, the US when the Vietnamese people started to travel to uh, to the US or Europe and they come back with the new ideas. So um, those uh, religious like Buddhism, they started to reorganize itself even more uh, uh, as an institutional religion and they start to basically draw very clear uh, boundaries what is a Buddhist practice and what is uh, not. So the chapter show that basically these ideological struggles between this competing purifying disciplines of the state agents who transform local religious practices to align with the present realities of post-socialist Vietnam and monks who held the, that neither cultural interest, not local custom, has a place in pure Buddhism and fishers who do not identify themselves with either of these top-down modernist disciplines, which I call uh, in the book... Uh, as a semiotic ideology, which is basically religious and state ideology. So in this, this chapter is basically one of the ways to tell the story of how different confrontations and contestations become visible uh, in Vietnam's maritime periphery, both in terms of discipline as a state project and of indiscipline as a common strategy of people navigating states and uh, religious ideologies. And what role does gender play in all of this? <laughs> um, once again, I think I have to uh, give you a twofold uh, answer for that because it is about positionality of men and women in a virtual landscape and my own positionality as a woman uh, in the in the field. So. Uh, in the chapter, I basically show that women constitute a more um, subaltern group like fishers who suffer from um, discrimination in the village religious space, uh, but also found the way to take advantage of the state cultural policies, um, which basically uh, try to make this religious space more uh, equal, uh, gave uh, more rights to uh, to women. And interestingly, uh, I before I started to do my research in Central Vietnam, I was for three years in um, uh, in Northern Vietnam, uh, and women could very freely enter temples to pray. And that really struck me in Central Vietnam, that uh, uh, basically, Finnish temples still had this old structure when the women were were excluded from uh, religious spaces so they they were they were incorporated in different ways so they prepared the feast they cooked they do all kinds of um hard labor uh, around the temples but men were those who uh, basically carried the rituals um and interestingly they uh, i they allowed me to enter uh, religious spaces to uh, take part in religious uh, rituals 
<clears throat> but that he also constantly checked my <laughs> badly, uh, body status, uh, whether I'm pure enough, whether I'm clean, <laughs> whether I not bring any uh, women's pollution to the uh, to the temples. <clears throat> and that actually, uh, when um, one of the of the of the sites, village sites, Nissan. Um, uh, uh, open to the tourists, um, those uh, uh, villagers, uh, especially others, say that dilemma whether open this uh, temples for the uh, female tourists that they knew that they have to because they have to attract to tourists that they have to attract uh, people. So they reluctantly did that, but uh, later they <laughs> they perform another ritual to chase the pollutions from the temples which were provoked by all these uh, tourists from uh, from uh, other parts uh, of uh, of Vietnam and in the last chapter I give these different examples how women actually navigated this uh, male uh, uh, ritual space so I think I start the chapter with the stories of um, spoiled chicken um, uh, where basically the so it's, we come back to the Forbidden Hill where you have these four goddesses, uh, uh, the Buddhist Bodhisattva, but you have also a local goddess Tienena, which was in the past very much fierce goddess who hated women. The only men uh, could enter her temple and went, um, uh, worship her. Uh, but after the uh, Vietnam War, uh, basically, her status started to change. The women have their own interpretation that she become practice Buddhism, she become merciful, she become calm, uh, and she become vegetarian. So when men performed the ritual for this goddess that they brought chicken, women uh, actually didn't agree with that because they thought that she become vegetarian, she doesn't eat anymore uh, meat. But they didn't want to uh, oppose men directly. So what they what they provided men, they provided men with the spoiled chicken, which basically couldn't be consumed uh, after uh, the ritual. And I remember I have never seen anything like that uh, in my entire uh, career as a as a, 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 a researcher in uh, in Vietnam. So that was a very interesting way how they. Uh, discreetly basically sabotage uh, men uh, religious practices but they also uh, women enhance their religious uh, uh, status by uh, basically also cultivating her reputation as a spirit medium equal to uh, men um, which had for example uh, consequences that allowed them to improve their financial status and um, also the status in the Village. So I think in this chapter, by focusing on gender role and by giving the last word to women, I wanted to basically show the process, ongoing process of redefining gender roles uh, in the ritual context uh, in uh, coastal communities and various regional dynamics of ritual life in post-socialist Vietnam so that there are different ways of being Vietnamese, different ways of uh, perform and enact gender roles uh, in different parts of uh, Vietnam, and um, and of course I was part of that experience as a, a 
non-Vietnamese female uh, white uh, anthropologist. Um, and basically, I wanted to show how these women uh, navigate, resist, and uh, survive in the, uh, in, the, in the local communities, so which they are part of, of that. Of that. I love this book so much. It was so much fun to read. I learned so much reading it. And thank you so much for coming on the show again. Uh, there is one final question, which is a tradition on the New Books Network, which is, what are you working on now? Uh, thank you. Uh, I think I'm wrapping up my uh, project funded by the European Research Council. And basically, I'm working on uh, writing a book, a uh, second monograph on transnational fisheries crime, which I want to unpack and basically uh, problematize, as I said uh, before. Um, but it's a, basically, it's the book will transcend the anthropology, history, and law, and provide interdisciplinary uh, analysis of connected trade uh, of luxury marine goods, which goes back to the 18th century. Uh, between Vietnam and China, and um, and basically uh, how that connects with unsustainable and destructive uh, fishing, um, and that is important, especially now with the new sign uh, high seas treaty by the United Nations, which actually shows that unsustainable, illegal, and destructive fishing is the biggest environmental problem. But my book tried to nuance that um, and look at fisheries beyond localized, territorialized, and national fishing industry and focus on fishers as maritime mobile actors who combine various skills, occupations, and incomes in wider transatlantic spaces and sometimes behave on behalf and, and in contravention of the state. Uh, and uh, the other projects, uh, which are now um, hopefully uh, uh, could develop further, and it will end up in the future in the book, is about it's basically combining uh, anthropology, archaeology, and geology, uh, and ask big questions about human history and human destiny uh, in times of planetary changes. So I'm not telling more, but this is something which I'm brewing. Uh, uh, right now. <laughs> and of course, I would love to have you back on to promote these books in the future. Thank you, Anna. It was such a pleasure to be part of that and talk today to you and uh, the audience. The book is Fishers, Monks, and Cadres, published in 2020 with Nias Press and 2021 with the University of Hawaii Press, and again is available in open access. Professor Roshko, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.